Listening to WWWY, the country's number one music station for all the biggest hits in pop, soft rock, R&B, and that's about it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm DJ Bex, and I'm the host most likely to be the somebody who's going to want to make you turn around and say goodbye. (laughs) I'm Seth, the host most likely to make it hard for you. (laughs) Girl, I'm Chris. The podcast host that's here for you all those times at night when you just hurt me and just ran out with that other fella. Baby, I knew about it. I just didn't care. Wow, you're pretty open. That's cool. That's really accepting. Is that the end of the monologue? Is that the monologue? I, I have more written out, but I decided to spare you. Thank you. This is part two of our track-by-track review of the top charting songs from every year of our youth. In the last episode, we re-listened to the biggest hits of the 1980s, including selections from George Michael, The Bengals, and Chicago for some reason. (laughs) And now it's time to tie your favorite flannel around your waist, feed your Tamagotchi, and adorn your hair with way too many butterfly clips. (laughs) It's the 90s, dude. (laughs) Tubular. (laughs) Before we get to the top songs of the 90s, I believe we have a new review. Uh, We have two new reviews, actually. Oh. Wow. The first one is short and sweet. It is from Jarvie23. Hi, Jarvie. And it reads, love when you talk about things you love, justice for Spice Girls. (laughs) (laughs) Which I thought was a very appropriate review for an episode about 90s music. Yeah, for sure. I guess we were a little mixed on the Spice Girls, but I feel like we were overall kind of kind to them. Thanks, Jarvie. Uh, Agree to disagree. And (laughs) that's that. (laughs) Okay, Seth wants injustice for the Spice Girls, but that is not the opinion of the podcast at large. Our next review comes from Quinny8385. The review title is, I love it as much as Kel loved orange soda, which was a lot if you ever watched Keenan and Kel on Nickelodeon. Oh, I was like, what are they talking about? <laughs> it's a 90s <laughs> reference, guys. We, we, we should know these things. We're, we're experts. We're going to have to talk about all that someday. Who loves orange soda? <laughs> Kel loves orange soda. Is it true? Is it true? Oh, yes, oh, yes, oh, yes, it's true. (laughs) The review is as follows. Hi, guys. Huge fan here. I was born and grew up in England, so there are a few episodes that went over my head as we didn't get them here, but even they were enjoyable. I now live in Boston, Massachusetts, and my parents blame me living here on watching so many American TV shows and movies growing up. (laughs) The TV and film geek in me gets so excited when a new episode comes out. I especially love the Jurassic Park episode. I've seen all five movies opening day. Scream and Back to the Future. Even though sometimes your opinions drive me crazy, I still love you guys. Back to the Future and Ace Ventura come to mind. I would love to see a Freaks and Geeks episode. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Paul. Thank you, Paul. That was such a lovely note. Welcome to America, even though it sounds like you've been here a while. Yeah, I I don't know. what Freaks and Geeks, when did that come out? I think it was 2000 or maybe 2001. So it's it's kind of in our purview. 
Uh, I mean, I'll do it. Everybody on that show is famous as fuck right now. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think that's a great idea. And it might redeem us for um, going a little hard on poor Ace Ventura. I'm going to guess they are pro Ace Ventura and uh, pro Back to the Future because I think both of you were anti. So We, we were rougher on Back to the Future than most people of our generation, I think, are. Yeah, I think that's the way to put it. Yeah. Not not totally yeah. anti, you know, there's there's great things, but... Um... Can we say, guys, we're critical, okay? <laughs> Before we talk about the big songs of the 90s, I would love to know, when you think of the 90s, like, what comes to mind? And, and I, not necessarily music, like anything, like when you think 90s, what do you think about? I guess I could go and say uh, music, <laughs> which is kind of obvious, maybe on my mind from this is just because it's the decade that I discovered music. But there's also like a lot of really distinct and iconic music from a lot of different genres. There's, you know, rap and hip hop, like really had a moment during this. Um, Alternative, obviously, as we've discussed in previous episodes, and then bubblegum pop. So like all these different genres of music that were kind of hovering in the background. But the the main thing that came to mind for me, weirdly enough, was news and TV and, <laughs> and like having the TV on and these like stories, mm. these news stories that went on forever, like OJ, Tanya Harding and Monica yeah. Lewinsky. Like I just remember like these things like seemingly like never, en- like I feel like they took up the entire 90s. Like there was always one of these like long ongoing things. And, you know, there were like murder investigations like John Bonet and stuff like that. Like there was always like some kind of like news event that everyone was obsessed with. Now we get inundated with news, but it's like on a more of a daily basis and like we get over things very quickly. And so for me, like the 90s just seems like this endless like series of like really like long, like years long dramas that unfolded in the news. That's interesting because now that you mention it, yeah, I'm thinking the Bill Clinton impeachment and the riots and the start of um, Core TV and things like that. My first thought was like comfortable and casual clothing <laughs> and floofy hair. <laughs> is my, when I think of the 90s, like I just picture like smiling teens that are like just wearing like loose fitting clothing. <laughs> I like how it's just like one stock photo of the 90s as your yeah, image. Seriously? Stock photo. That's what I think of. And they've got like the floofy butt cut kind of hair. <laughs> or hair like Demi Moore had, like in Disclosure, like that kind of hair. Mm-hmm. And I think of grunge. I originally thought of grunge and then Britney Spears, but she was more like in the late 90s. And it was the 2000s were more like her thing. Yeah. With like NSYNC and Bubblegum yeah. Pop. So I was really thinking like mumbly rock. Alanis, Nirvana, like like rock, like different kinds of rock, but like rock music. Really, really good movies and really bad TV besides The Simpsons and Seinfeld. And Buffy. And Buffy. <laughs> and X-Files. <laughs> and like the beginning of the internet. That's what I think. I think of like the dial-up noises and chatting in chat rooms. So you think about everything we've covered on this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So you think about the 90s when you think about the 90s? Yeah, (laughs) I guess I just get these images and that's what I think of. Yeah. When I think of the 90s, it's not a it's not a negative decade for me when I when I think about it. I I think of it almost like fondly, which is interesting because it's not like I was doing much. I was just in school. (laughs) But maybe it's just like the vibe is is like if I were an adult back then, maybe that's where if I had to like be in a past decade, maybe that's the decade I'd choose. Not a bad choice, I think. That's interesting. 
So for me, there was a time when your friend Seth had a butt cut. <laughs> it was brief and bitter. I think it was like sixth or seventh grade, something, something around there. I aged out of it very quickly. Thank the Lord. But no, the first, the very first thing that came to mind as like epitomizing the nineties was the CD Walkman, like the disc man. Mm-hmm. And of course, we've talked about radio and we've talked about music videos here, but the 90s are really when I started to hear not just singles, but like albums as whole albums. A lot of times my friends would play those for me, and that was really what got me more into rock in the 90s, more into also later on, like No Doubt and that kind of thing. Like friends would play me their CDs on a Walkman usually. So that was kind of the first thing I thought of. Cool. Yeah, I just kind of wanted to place our listeners into like what the 90s were, because maybe some of them weren't even born then. Shut your mouth. (laughs) I I don't know why preschoolers would be listening to our show. (laughs) Let's dive even further into what the 90s were all about by going year by year and seeing uh, what had uh, everybody humming each year. (laughs) Let's start with 1990 with uh, Wilson Phillips' Hold On. Um, The song was from their self-titled debut album. It was num- it was at number one on the Hot 100 for one week. <laughs> but their album included five hit singles, including Hold On, which won the Billboard Music Award for the Hot 100 Single of the Year and was nominated for a Grammy for Song of the Year. A little background on who Wilson Phillips are. Carney Wilson, Wendy Wilson, and China Phillips. They are the daughters of Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys and Jean and Michelle Phillips of the Mamas and the Papas, two legendary rock bands. In 1992, Wilson Phillips made history as Billboard declared their debut album the best-selling album of all time by an all-female group. <laughs> they were a very big deal back in 1990 or the early 90s. So let's listen to Hold On. No one can change your life except for you. Don't ever let anyone step all over you. Just open your heart and your mind. Mm-hmm. Is it really fair to feel this way inside? So as I mentioned in the last episode, I first experienced these songs for the podcast as a playlist, and I listened to it all the way through while I was driving. So it had an interesting ebb and flow to it. And like the minute this one comes on, it's like, hi, we're the 90s. It's just... It feels very 1990. Like, you couldn't pick a better intro, I think, into the 90s of just, like, kind of what the early 90s felt like. I also watched the video for this. Uh, It felt very pure moods, as the song kind of (laughs) does at times, too. I did not know Wilson Phillips was three people. I thought it was two, because it's two names. 
<laughs> in the name, so I was kind of constantly confused about who the third person was. It was this guy named Wilson Phillips with a really high voice. <laughs> the song is fine. Like, it doesn't offend me. It doesn't bother me. I can listen to it. There's nothing particularly interesting about it. Like, we found in some of the 80s songs, like The Bangles. Like, I think maybe The Bangles is the best comparison to this one. But they had so much, like, style and charisma. And these, they were like wet noodles in the video. Like, it just... <laughs> There wasn't really a lot to uh, hold on to, uh, if you will. Well, watch the video for examples of the most unflattering clothes ever for all three of them. They don't look good. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I'll agree this feels like 1990. uh, But to me, musically, it also feels like kind of an 80s hangover. Just like the last dregs of 1980s Mm -hmm. balladry. Um, yeah, and it also feels like a very, like, 1980s Reaganomics kind of song that's all about, like, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and, like, it's your fault, you're feeling (laughs) shitty and in the situation you are, like, fix yourself. This absolutely does epitomize, like, quote-unquote, the 90s, but it's not much of a song, doesn't really, like, have staying power for me in any way. And, And yeah, especially, like, Chris sent us the list of the number one pop albums during these years and that year's number one album was janet jackson's rhythm nation which is like iconic and legendary and still you could spin that today and it sounds like the 90s but it still sounds fresh and interesting and there's not really much that was fresh and interesting about hold on disagree wow <laughs> Oh, no. I think you have to be a girl to like, is this like one of those songs that like, (laughs) that like girls just like sing to each other (laughs) and like. In the locker room? And like would sing in the car. Like if you're Cameron Diaz and Drew Barrymore in a 1990s. No, if you're Kristen Wiig and Maya Rudolph. Right. Yes. Right. And when that happened at the end of Bridesmaids, I was like, of course because women love this song. This was a song um, my all-female acapella choral group sang in high school, so I know the alto parts (laughs) to the song, and every time (laughs) it comes on, I have to sing the alto parts, which is, like, (laughs) hilarious. It's definitely a throwback. Like, it doesn't sound modern. I would like to throw it back. (laughs) And I would never put this song on, like, a normal playlist, but, like, it's a solid pop song that, like, makes me sing to it so for that it makes me very happy i will give it credit for like the percussive like breakdown section which i I think is the best part of the song like that part like kind of gets me going when they take out like the cheesy piano a little bit more and it's just more drums but uh no (laughs) (laughs) i will hold on hold on oh okay i'll hold off on hold on we're having so much fun with this Let's move on to 1991 with parentheses, everything I do, close parentheses, I do it for you by Brian Adams. Brian Adams is a Canadian soft rocker. That's right. You don't say. Emphasis on soft. Soft. (laughs) Cashmere rocker. This song is off the soundtrack for Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. It's also on his album, Waking Up the Neighbors. It is one of the best-selling singles of all time. It's in the 12th spot. Uh, And it sold more than 15 million copies worldwide. The single topped the Billboard Hot 100 for seven weeks. In the UK, it spent 16 weeks at number one on the UK singles chart, which is the longest uninterrupted run ever on that chart as of currently. Jesus. 
Yeah. The song was nominated for two Grammys, including Record of the Year, and it won Best Song Written Specifically for a Motion Picture. It was also nominated for an Oscar for Best Song, but lost to Beauty and the Beast. Look into my eyes obsessed with this song as a kid. What? I need to note that it was the first of several songs we'll cover in this podcast episode to be released for Kevin Costner movies, for everyone who's keeping track here. I remember distinctly when this movie, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, came out, I just really fell for it, and in particular fell for this song. And there was a very long music video that featured clips from the movie. I had action figures from this movie. I got a toy bow and arrow because of this movie. Wow. I don't know what it was about Brian Adams' soft, rockin', soothing voice. I was really deeply emotionally moved by this song and by like the theme of like self-sacrifice and really it ultimately doesn't have much to do with the movie at all. <laughs> and of course now it's like it's pure schmaltz. <laughs> Wait, so does it hold up for you or not hold up for you? Oh, n- no, it doesn't hold up. It's a oh. <laughs> it's a very mediocre song. Again, it like it feels like to me in retrospect it feels like Brian Adams is like the pre-creed of of music of popular music um because yeah i see like a straight line between a song like this and like any of creed's like ballady songs or any kind of early 2000s generic guitar rock yeah it's it's to me a lot like wilson phillips this is very mayonnaise <laughs> generic bland music yeah <laughs> sorry i had to wake myself up a little uh, <laughs> search your heart, search your soul. I mean, this song is too earnest for me. I it, like I can't, <laughs> I can't do this kind of music. It's like easy listening, adult contemporary. Like none of this is for me. Um, like this is a perfect wedding song, which means it's the exact opposite of anything I want to listen to. <laughs> like I, like I just like hear this. I'm like everything really. Like you don't have your own agenda. Like you don't have your own needs. The only things that you're doing are for someone else. Yeah, it seems like a very codependent song. Like as a song, it's fine. It's not like the worst song. It's it like you can hear it in the background, and it, it's it's okay. Like it doesn't offend you. There's nothing like particularly wrong with it. It's just it's just so bland. Like I. Chris, I can't believe you never heard this in a dentist chair. I don't think I did. Like, or or maybe it was when they put me out. <laughs> like, 
instead of Novocaine, they just played this song. Um, yep. Yeah, like, and, and I had no association with the song. I know I heard it, but like, I it was something like I didn't even take notice of in the '90s. So it was just sort of like. And Brian Adams apparently had like you know a, a decent amount of hits, and none of them really reached my my attention. So I don't I, I don't know what to say. Uh, everything I do, I do it for you. Did not do it for me. <laughs> yeah, the song feels very dated, and yet I still hear it all the time at the grocery store. <laughs> Absolutely, constantly in drugstores. I guess it's just one of those songs from the past where it's just easy listening. I mean, I agree with both of you, Chris. You said it was just so earnest. Like that's just not my vibe. <laughs> it's just a song for people to dance the first dance at their wedding. Yeah, like a designated slow dance. Absolutely. Yeah. That's all we have to say about that. (laughs) (laughs) We found the end of the road for that conversation. Speaking of. (laughs) What a coincidence. I know, what a coincidence. (laughs) The highest charting song of 1992 was End of the Road by Boys Two Men. It spent 13 weeks at number one. The song is from their album Cooley High Harmony, which is all one word. Boys to Men comes from Philadelphia. They're known for their emotional ballads and acapella harmonies. They used to be a quartet, but they're currently a trio, and they are still, you know, out there touring, making music. Michael McCary uh, left the group in 2003 due to multiple sclerosis. Wow. So it's not because they had, like, a falling out or something, or somebody had, like, a solo career, but they had uh, health concerns. So let's take a listen to End of the Road. song i always loved the harmonies and melodies in boys to men songs and appreciated the way that they dug into their voices rather than backing away from them like all the fucking white boy pop vocal groups did and yeah it's really it's not surprising that they had so many like quote-unquote crossover hits you know because their lyrics are kind of generic standard r&b but they just have really lovely voices so yeah i i enjoyed listening to this mostly for that oh i'm a big sucker for harmonies totally same yeah i i mean i'm not like a boys to men completist but i i like their singles and i like a boy band with real men in it that are like yep. yeah we're in real <laughs> relationships <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I think it's a great song. It's, it's, it's still really good. Like, it's not embarrassing. It's It's not like, it doesn't like drip with like the nineties on it, you know? Um, (laughs) I, I'm surprised that, um, boys to men's I'll make love to you. wasn't a number one song of the year, uh, in the nineties. Cause I know that was a massive hit. So I think I was surprised that it was end of the road and not I'll make love to you. 
Chris, what do you think of this song? Girl. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not a fan. Uh, Wow. I feel the same way about this one that I did about everything I do. I do it for you. Oh, wow. Which did not do it for me. To me, it was the same vibe. And it's just so earnest. And in a way, like, more earnest. Because he's basically just saying, like, you cheat on me constantly. And I'm so... Still, I'm, I'm just cool with that. And it's just not my thing. Too earnest. Also, we've talked about um, in previous episodes, uh, junior high school dances. And this, <laughs> oh. this is a wallflower song. This is oh, a song yes. that I would mm-hmm. shuffle off the dance floor into a corner and watch everyone slow dance <laughs> and just be like, God, mm. when will the song end? Chris, that is, those words are a dagger to my heart. Absolutely. Like, I, Exactly that. Uh, Honestly, it's worse than the dentist chair. So, oh wow! As a song, I mean, it's not bad. Like they're obviously like great singers. Um, it's not like an offensive song in any way. Like there's nothing wrong with it. It's just like, especially like as I experienced it, like listening to all of this through, it was like it was not the vibe I really wanted as a pick me up after the Brian Adams song. <laughs> The song was written by Babyface, and I, I like looked over his other his other songs, and they are all kind of like this. And it's just I like Motown Philly because it's upbeat. Like that's a good song. Um, I kind of wish that mm-hmm. one was on this uh, as number one instead. But yeah, I'm just not like really an R and B person. But I mean, this song was a monster hit. It was I think it set a new record at the time uh, at number one. So good for boys to men, but not really my thing. The monologue's really funny, though. I did laugh. It is really funny. Honestly, Chris, I kind of interpreted the monologue as casting the meaning of a song, like being like he's in an open relationship kind of thing. We're like, <laughs> he's okay if she goes and plays around and comes back. Like, I think this song is more sex positive than we may be giving it credit for. It's called End of the Road. It's not called <laughs> Fork in the Road. <laughs> mm, good point. That's a fair counterpoint. That's a fair counterpoint. <laughs> All right. The road is done. The road is over. Let's go back down the road. Or I can't, I don't know. This metaphor isn't working. Let's go to 1993 with I Will Always Love You by Whitney Houston. The song was written and originally recorded in 1973 by Dolly Parton. Yes, it is written by Dolly Parton. Hell yeah. Whitney Houston's version of it was recorded for the soundtrack to her film, The Bodyguard. Her single spent then record-breaking 14 weeks at number one. It's one of the best-selling singles of all time. It's actually fourth place on the best-selling singles of all time. It broke Boys to Men's record the year before set with End of the Road, which had 13 weeks at number one. The song, uh, I Will Always Love You, also holds the record for being the best-selling single by a woman in music history. I Will Always Love You won the 1994 Grammy Award for Record of the Year and Best Female Pop Vocal Performance. She was originally supposed to record a cover of the song What Becomes of the Brokenhearted as the lead single for The Bodyguard. Oh, Oh, that's a great song. But then she discovered the song was supposed to be used for the Fried Green Tomatoes soundtrack. So she wanted a different (laughs) song. And Kevin Costner is the one who suggested Dolly Parton's I Will Always Love You. Oh my God, that's hilarious. (laughs) He played her Linda Ronstadt's 1975 version to convince her, and yeah, she loved it. Her record company did not want the acapella introduction, but uh, Houston and Costner insisted on retaining it. And it was a big hit. (laughs) 
I would never have imagined that Costner had anything to do with the actual song of this. Yeah. <laughs> That's a great fact. <laughs> yeah. This is second in our two-part Kevin Costner movie series that I'm calling <laughs> At What Cost. Nur. <laughs> if I should stay, I would own be in your way so I'll go but I know I'll think of you every step of the way and I So this song is is cheesy, um, but I feel like it just works as a showcase to show just how it's like evidence of how talented Whitney Houston was. <laughs> like, like oh, I yeah. want to I want to listen to it from start to finish just to hear her voice and like her talent. Um, the song is is a nice song. It's a nice love song. It is very much like a joke at this point. Like it's so it's so. I don't know what the word is. Like, it's like, it's you so known as a showstopper, you yeah. know, it's mm-hmm. like, yeah, as like, like the hitting it out of the park. Yeah. If you want moment. to show that you can sing, like you sing this song. And no um, one ever should but, besides Whitney Houston. <laughs> like, do not try honestly, it. There should be, a, you cannot do it better. I believe I'm pretty sure Congress tried to pass a law making it illegal to sing this song anymore. I don't know if it passed though. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, you guys. I I feel like she was really phoning it in. Like, you know, she just has no energy, no passion. Uh, No, I'm kidding. Yeah, her vocal performance is amazing. Like, maybe, like, if you want to be like, here's what a vocal performance can be, you might pick this song. Yeah, it does remind me, like Becky's saying, of My Heart Will Go On or something. Something that was just so instantly Mm. iconic and of a moment Mm -hmm. that it kind of instantly becomes dated and cheesy. (laughs) Like, it's hard to imagine, like, hearing this song for the first time with, like, no irony and being kind of blown away. Like, I would actually like to, like, have that moment, but... Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, like, I heard it for the first time at some point, but it feels like even even the first time I heard it, it had all this, like, sort of attachment of, like, this is amazing, and it just kind of, <laughs> it's like a weird taint on the song. Yeah, I, I'm on the same page as both of you. Like, I, I think, especially in retrospect, we can all admit the song is kind of threadbare. It's It doesn't feel like there are more than maybe two verses, um, like there's not all that much to it as far as the content, but it, it is an all time great performance of one of the absolute all time great voices in music ever, ever, ever in recorded song. Um, and, and yeah, I, I just think it's even hearing the end of that, like over a cell phone <laughs> transmitted across the internet, it's still kind of like instant goosebumps, whether you want it to be or not for me. 
Um, and, and yeah, so I, I think again, it's it's not a movie that anyone associates with Kevin Costner, certainly. Um, and I think it's really cool that he fought to like uh, fought, fought alongside Whitney Houston to make sure that they had the acapella part at the top because that that to me is really like what brings you into that song and absolutely brings you into her vocal performance. Um, yeah, I, I think it's I think it's kind of a milestone for that reason. Um, and again, just very interesting how many of these songs originate on movie soundtracks. Yeah, I need to point out the fact that we've been doing this podcast for four and a half years. I think this is the first time we've ever mentioned Kevin Costner. <laughs> <laughs> and probably will be the last. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, are we going to do Dance with the Wolves? I mean... <laughs> are we going to do Tin Cup? <laughs> I mean, that's the great, like, thing about this song to me is, like, imagine feeling that way about Kevin Costner. Like, it kind of just, like, <laughs> it's like, are you sure that that that's how you feel yeah. about him? <laughs> him. <laughs> the original title of this movie was called Him. Him. But I do think, like, of all probably the songs in the 90s, like, this is the one that I saw on the chart. And I was like, yep. Like, not a surprise, <laughs> you know, like... It, oh, yeah, it was not a surprise at oh, all. Yeah. It's an easy number one. Yeah. All right, let's move on to 1994, uh, where Ace of Bases' The Sign was the number one song of that year. The Sign is off of the band's North American studio album, The Sign. Uh, they're a Swedish pop group. It spent six non-consecutive weeks at number one, and it had a no- uh, it got a Grammy nomination for Best Pop Performance by a Duo or a Group. So a little bit of trivia about Ace of Base. I don't know if it's trivia or it's just a, a non-fun fact. <laughs> Here's <laughs> is, a devastating uh, fact mem- about Ace of Base. Here's a devastating fact about a, a band that I have their albums. Oh. <laughs> is a, a, what, one of the members, Ulf Ekberg, who's a founding member of Ace of Base, he started his career as a neo-Nazi skinhead. He created a platform for his ideals through his Nazi punk band, Commit Suicide. (laughs) That's the name of the band. He sang songs with explicit racist lyrics that I'm not going to say here. And it's unclear if um, the rest of the band, when they, um, you know, um, brought him along into the band, uh, knew about his, you know, previous Nazi tendencies or not, but um, he has said in recent years that, you know, that was a different person and and he disavows everything that he did back in his youth. So I, I did a little reading about this because I, I read an article years ago that kind of attested that Ace of Base were like a secret Nazi group themselves. And from what I was able to garner, like he definitely does, he did have a past as a very like racist person who had fascist ideas and he does like disavow that. But he also claimed that songs that have leaked out to the internet that had those racist lyrics, he claims that those were not songs by his band at all, that he had no association with them. So I only say that to say that that's contested. Okay. But it's still wild to learn. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I had heard, like, when I told my husband we were, like, the songs, he was like, oh, Ace of Base is a totally Nazi band. And I was like, I'm going to do a little bit more digging to that because I don't think they're a Nazi band. <laughs> so let's listen to The Sign.
my note on this song was, oh, thank God, a drum. (laughs) (laughs) It was a real earnest three songs with uh, Brian Adams, (laughs) Boys to Men, and Whitney. That's true. This was a waterfall in the middle of the desert for me. It feels like hardcore punk after the three songs we just listened to. This song is kind of ubiquitous and feels very 90s, but also just feels like it's always on in a convenience store or something. <laughs> I, d- I watched the video, I think, for the first time. I don't think I'd ever seen it before. It's still kind of cool, I think. I mean, maybe I'm crazy. It's got weird symbols. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I was kind of into it. And yeah, I feel like this is one of those like pop hits that just kind of is dated, but never exactly gets old. I cannot agree more. I love this song. I love this band. I have at least two of their albums, but The Sign, I used to listen to it. It was my sister's album. And then this, I remember the song being enormous in 1994. And we would listen to this album together. And I know every single song on this album. Like, I love all of them. I know the lyrics to all of them. Like, I love (laughs) The Sign and Ace of Face. Weird, huh? (laughs) I think it's such a solid pop song. Like, it's really, like, it reminds me of, like, Hold On, where it's just, like, such a girl's thing to, like, bust this out and, like, hear it and then just, like, hear it in the car and then just, like, you're singing it and you're, like, dance chair dancing. Like, <laughs> like it's definitely, like, dated, but still, like, so much fun to listen to. Yeah, I feel like if it came out today, like, it could still sound the same way and it would still be just as much of a hit. Like, it just... It's kind of just like one of those pop songs that it's dated because it came out at a certain time and we associate it with like the 90s. But I also think there's nothing like particularly 90s about it. It just it could have been an 80s song or it could come out today and it would still just like everyone would be singing along. I don't know. I just felt like this song is catchy, but who the fuck cares? And like, Chris, maybe that is like the precise mathematical opposite of your reaction. (laughs) Where it's like your problem with the previous three was that they cared too much and there was no <laughs> percussion anywhere. And I'm like, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm bopping along to the beat, but I'm not feeling anything in my heart. I mean, again, it's it's a very catchy song. It's a, it's a total earworm of a song. It felt a lot more like the Barbie girl of its time. Fuck yeah, it did. <laughs> yeah, yeah, again, which like, it totally fits. It totally fits that y'all love. But this is less embarrassing to love than Barbie girl. Oh, sure. Yeah. No, I I think this is less specifically just 90s and to me kind of fits more in the pop tradition of those songs in the 80s. Again, this isn't necessarily a song that I just like pigeonhole as representing the entire 90s, but it's, it's an enjoyable listen as the song goes, you know? I also think, though, that, like, if you're going to call out one-hit wonders, I think this might be, like, the number one one-hit wonder. Or at least, like, up there. Because it's just, like... I disagree. They had another one. They were a two-hit wonder. <laughs> they did. They had Don't Turn Around, <laughs> which was a big hit. Oh, th- three, then. All That She Wants. All yes, that she they wants had is three hit baby. songs, so I think you're wrong. They were three-hit wonders. They were. They had three, and those were off the same album. That was a fucking awesome album. Okay, so the album was one hit. <laughs> Take back your words, Chris. We demand a retraction. <laughs> the album had several hits. <laughs> but, like, they only had one hit album. Like, so I guess maybe it's not, like, one hit single. Sure. <laughs> no, I also disagree. 
I disagree because their single off their second album, It's a Beautiful Life, charted pretty well. I don't know if it went to number mm. one, but I'm just saying. <laughs> I don't know that song. Do you want me to sing it for you? Do you want me to sing? Nope. I can sing. Do you want me to sing? <laughs> don't mind me sing. We gotta go. We gotta go. We gotta go. I do I do have to note that uh, bass is not spelled correctly in their name. Ace of bass. Yeah. <laughs> they spell it like a baseball bass, but that... Yeah. It doesn't doesn't really, you know, fit with the musical theme. I think they didn't want people to call them Ace of Bass. They didn't want people to call them Ass of Bass, which would have been a better name. (laughs) All right. All right. We're getting goofy. All right, let's head to 1995, where Gangsta's Paradise was the number one song. The song was recorded by Coolio featuring LV. It's on Coolio's album of the same name, and it's also on the soundtrack to Dangerous Minds, a movie starring Michelle Pfeiffer. Oh, not not Waterworld? Not Waterworld. Not Kevin Costner movie. It samples Stevie Wonder's 1976 song, Pastime Paradise. Gangster's Paradise is one of the few Coolio songs that doesn't have profanity, as Stevie Wonder would not allow the sample to be used if it did. <laughs> That's what friends are for. <laughs> <laughs> the single spent 12 weeks in the top two of the Billboard Hot 100, of which three were spent at number one and nine at number two. It won the Grammy for Best Rap Solo Performance. If you've seen the video, it co-stars Michelle Pfeiffer, and it was directed by Anton Fuqua, who directed Training Day. It was a pretty memorable music video, mostly because Weird Al then parodied the song and the video. Coolio actually did not approve of the Weird Al parody called Amish Paradise. I don't know why not. Well, Weird Al claimed that he had been told that Coolio gave his approval through his record label, and he didn't. And because of that, Weird Al now asked permission directly from the artist to parody their songs. I don't believe he needs permission from the artist, but he wants the artist to be on board. (laughs) Years later, Coolio has said that objecting to Weird Al's parody was probably one of the least smart things I've ever done. And Becky knows every line of the Weird Al parody. So I can sing that later for you. But right now, let's listen to Gangster's Paradise. <laughs> I'm an educated fool with money on my mind. Got my tin in my hand and a gleam in my eye. I'm a low down gangster, set tripping banker. And my homies is down, so don't arouse my anger. Fool, death ain't nothing but a heartbeat away. I'm living life through a dire. What can I say? I'm 23 now, but will I live to see 24? The way things are going, I don't know. It was really interesting to me to learn that this was a number one song. Really? Even though it it was kind of inescapable at the time, and it definitely ended up like being so much more famous than the movie Dangerous Minds. I don't know offhand what other songs were chart toppers that year, but yeah, it was surprising to learn that. I found this notable mostly because this was one of the only songs here and one of the first songs where the content of the words in the lyrics is 
maybe even more important than the music. I would absolutely consider it a pop song. I think it is really catchy. I love the way that it uses the sample. Like the way that it incorporates the sample really helps like keep the song flowing. And I like the flow of his rhythm. Like I like Coolio's rhythm in this. And I appreciated that it really told a story. Whereas, you know, most of these other songs are just like pure pop songs in the sense that they don't have all too much of a message beyond just kind of the the fun of the pop format. I, yeah, I found it really interesting that it took this long for like rap and hip hop to reach like Mm -hmm. the number one, uh, because obviously it was a huge influence on music throughout like 80s and especially the 90s. And this is the mid 90s. And we're finally getting like a real rap song. And just like it's now kind of like the dominant sound of pop music. So it's interesting how much pop music in these 15 years we've talked about so far didn't have this kind of sound to it. You mentioned the lyrics to this song, which are about, you know, like living on the streets, young black adults, kind of wondering if they'll even like live to the age of 24. This is not Wilson Phillips. Like it's so strikingly (laughs) different. Like it almost just feels like obscene to compare this to a lot of the other music, you know, that we've, we've talked about, you know, the Bengals are all like, what if we did a funny walk? And then this is like life and death stakes in this song, which is not the content of any of these other songs. It's really striking and it's a running theme throughout like rap and hip hop is, you know, really dark subject matter and, you know, talking about guns and violence and survival. And it's funny to me that this was an, a number one song, you know, in the same couple of years that I Will Always Love You was that that like... <laughs> culture can embrace this song at the same time as it's embracing that because I mean it just seems kind of like the stakes of this song are so high and like it's immediately like just jumps out at me that this is something very different than any of the other stuff that we've been talking about. I remember this song being enormous. Mm-hmm. So when I saw this on this on the list I was like, "Oh, uh-huh." Yeah. Like it didn't surprise me at all. Mm. It was a juggernaut. I think this song is fantastic. I think it inspired me to buy Coolio's album back in the day because I definitely had it. Like I was just looking at the album cover and I'm like, yep, that's in my CD collection. <laughs> like <laughs> like I bought his whole album because I liked this song so much. Yeah, it's something different for sure. It stands out. There is a lot of treacliness in these songs of, of the 90s, like very earnest. Yeah. Very like soft rock kind of earnestness. Like, like wedding earnestness. <laughs> but then this is definitely earnest, but in a very real way. In a it's just it's just so different. And I think because it's so different, that must have been why people really attached to it, because it really stood out. And I think it's still great. I, I I would definitely listen to this from start to finish, which I can't say about a bunch of other songs. Yeah, this is one of the only songs on this 90s list that I like feel like is still kind of part of my rotation. I would put this on and not really think twice about it. I think it's a great song. I love like the epic sound of it. I I liked it, you know, like when it came back in the 90s and I don't think it ever really went out of style. It is a little bit like any number one song. You're kind of like, oh, okay, like that song. But like the content of it is gritty enough that it never really like became uh, like hold on, (laughs) you know, something like that where like became cheesy for a little while and in in that case still is pretty cheesy but you know like this one it it still sounds you know a lot like a song i think that could come out today hey guys i'm so sorry but we have to move on to 1996 yes please macarena was sweeping the nation (laughs) 
Hey, Macarena. I... <laughs> Hi. Hey. <laughs> the Macarena Hi. Bay- Bayside Boys mix by Los Del Rio appeared on the 1993 album, A Mi Me Gusta. Oh, not not the Dances with Wolves <laughs> soundtrack. <though. laughs> not the Dances with Wolves. Okay. <laughs> oh, this is not the Costner mix? <laughs> not the Field of Dreams soundtrack. <laughs> really would have loved all those wolves doing the Macarena, but... I guess right. I guess I'll have to wait. So it was a 1993 <laughs> album, but in 1995, the Bayside Boys released a remix of the song that added English lyrics. It spent 14 weeks at number one. Oh boy! <laughs> uh, I looked up some reviews of Macarena. <laughs> a critic named Dave Fobert from Shortlist said that the Macarena is a song that exists independently of cool time and criticism it's just there <laughs> i love this and I with that absolutely love that i am so sorry but let's listen to the macarena now don't you worry about my boyfriend the boy whose name is vitorino i don't want him couldn't stand him he was no good so i <laughs> now come on what was i supposed to do he was out of town and his two friends were so this song announces itself with a banshee laugh from the distance, and you know that there will be no more light and no more air. <laughs> For the Macarena sees all, and the Macarena consumes all. (laughs) The Macarena was the Cthulhu of the 1990s. Yeah. Did you have more to say? (laughs) I mean, it's a song that was just immediately inescapable. And it doesn't matter that it's a terrible grating song that you couldn't escape, because you truly couldn't escape it. You know, like Macarena built the foundation that the the Baja men turned into who let the dogs out. (laughs) But this is a song that has become compulsory at weddings at school dances, probably at funerals and bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs. It's awful, but I also feel like we'll never be fully rid of it. (laughs) That was like a poem, Seth. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. That was like Faulkner. (laughs) I remember being 13 and hearing this song over and over and over and being like, why is this song everywhere? <laughs> why is this song everywhere? Like, why do people like this song? I've heard it like five times today. Like, maybe it was one of the first times I was like, this is bad. <laughs> like, okay, I don't think any of us are a fan. I'm just going to assume for Chris. But like, what makes it bad? Is it the dance? Is it the ubiquity of it? Is it, Or is it just a bad song? The answer is yes. <laughs> All three. I can't, I don't know. I could... For me, I mean, talk about songs that were just done to death, that were heard everywhere for such a sustained period of time, that whatever value they held was completely lost, combined with the fact that this really had little value to begin with as a pop song. I don't know about y'all, but I looked up a music video, uh, a live performance, actually, of, of them doing this. Oh, yeah. And, and these guys are, like, very old. 
they were middle-aged at at youngest when this came out. Yeah. Even if I were a Spanish speaker, I wouldn't think this was a very complex, interesting song. No, it's, it's not. It's almost like, I think of it as like a, hey, Mickey, you're so fine. Like <laughs> that level of like call and response, very dumb, very simple pop. So yeah, I think just the, the ubiquity and the kind of fact that there's not all that much fun there within the pop formula, even to make it like, enjoyable as a song that's what it is for me chris i love this song (laughs) no i'm not kidding what chris what i love it are you okay (laughs) chris you love it ironically don't shit me don't okay i mean first (laughs) let me just set a scene for you (laughs) dig if you will this picture (laughs) I experienced these songs as a playlist. So I was listening, <laughs> listening, Gangsta's Paradise, loving it. Great song, very severe lyrics, serious subject matter. The song ends and then this strikes up <laughs> and it was the perfect <laughs> moment like of a like road trip song. Like I hadn't listened to this song, you know, ev- well, really ever on purpose. I remember it coming out. I don't think it was like ever cool. Did you guys ever like do this dance like with friends or anything yes. and like think it was fun? Yes. Oh my yes. god, really? Yes. Yes. Okay. How many bar mitzvahs did you go to? None. Chris everywhere. Okay, so for me the song was like something that like parents thought was fun to do and like cool. Like I remember, I feel like like family members doing it or something. And I was always just like, no. You know, I, I'm sure I did it like once or twice, but I never thought it was cool. So the dance is horrible. It's the world's worst dance. It's so lazy. Like you don't even really move very much. It's just some arm movements. But it's easy to remember. It's exactly like the hand jive. Yeah. It's literally like the same dance it, as that. It's the reason it's popular, the dance at least, is because it's easy to do. Everyone can do it. Yeah. So like I feel like the dance like it's so embarrassing. Like it is the most embarrassing thing, probably of the entire nineties, is that dance and the fact that like people did it and it was a thing. And I, I think the the dance and and the whole craze is awful. But then <laughs> The actual song, I think, is, like, super fun. I don't know. Like, I find it kind of hilarious. Like, yes, it's kind of ironic, but, like, I don't know. Like, it it just, like, sort of announces itself as, like, dance music entering this, like, number one (laughs) pantheon of songs. Um, And, like, like, the lyrics are kind of hilarious. Like, it's about this girl named Macarena who, uh, like cheats on her boyfriend with two of his friends or something while he's like joining the army Uh, oh yeah hilarious (laughs) what a hoot i don't know i think it's funny the rapidly spoken spanish is give your body joy macarena because your body is meant to be given joy and good things and so i think it's like really hilarious that like everyone was doing this like awful dance craze to this sort of like slutty horny little song It's not a good song. Like, it's not like, you know, it, it is not Gangsta's Paradise. It is not George Michael or Prince. But, like, I find it also interesting that this was, like, sort of a gateway into the way that, like, Latin music kind of infused pop a few years later with, like, Ricky Martin and J-Lo coming in. A very, like, cheesy gateway drug. But, like, I listened to this <laughs> song many times. Like, this was, like, kind of, like, physical for me where I just, like, kind of kept going back and playing oh, it. wow. And if you don't do the dance... I'm coming out as a as a Macarena fan. Wow. 
I don't even, I specifically don't compare it to physical. Because, like, physical feels like a full pop song. The Macarena, like, really just seems like one verse and one chorus just looped for, like, eternity. That's true. It, like, it doesn't feel like a pop song to me. It does feel like it's, oh, like, uh, have you heard that? Oh, God, what are they called? Just like any of these dances that play at, yeah. at weddings. Um, there's another one, like, move to the left, yeah. jump up and down. <laughs> Electric slide. Like, cause I, like, my husband is um, a wedding photographer, and he just tells me, like, the mind-numbingness of these the songs always come up and everybody does the dance, but like it goes on forever. And that's what this sounds like. This isn't like a bite-sized little pop song. Right. That feels like you're just on a little three minute journey. Like it feels like this goes on forever. That's fair. I will not be defending it musically, but, and I would like normally like turn it on for like two minutes and then probably end it before the song actually ended. I also just wanted to point out, this was another hilarious juxtaposition with the album of this year, which was Jagged Little Pill by Alanis Morissette. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, you want to talk about like a contrast yeah. in musical styles. Right. One, one is really great and the other is uh, Jagged Little Pill. <sighs> I knew you were going to go with that. <laughs> <laughs> I need to move on to 1997. We have to move on to 1997. The number one pop single of 1997 was Candle in the Wind. 1997. It was also sold with a B-side, so it's also Something About the Way You Look Tonight by Elton John. It is also known as Goodbye England's Rose or Candle in the Wind 97. The song topped the charts for 14 weeks. It premiered at Princess Diana's funeral. Elton John and Princess Diana were close friends. After her tragic death, Elton John has said that he got a phone call from Richard Branson, who said that many of those writing in the Book of Condolences at St. James Palace were quoting lyrics from Candle in the Wind. It was Branson who asked Elton John if he would rewrite the lyrics and sing them at the funeral. Elton John has said he believes that Branson had been contacted by Princess Diana's family, the Spencer family. And so he contacted his lyricist, Bernie Taupin, and they worked on revising the lyrics. The song was performed only once in public at Princess Diana's funeral. After the funeral, Elton John went directly to the recording studio to record it. And that is the only time he's ever um, sang it publicly. He said that he would never sing it again publicly unless Princess Diana's sons asked for it. Uh, some candle facts. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> the global proceeds from the song went towards Princess Diana's charities. The single has sold 33 million copies worldwide, and it's just behind Bing Crosby's White Christmas as the best-selling single of all time. Wow. So it's kind of like the uh, That's What Friends Are For of the 90s. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but a much more subdued Elton John. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Goodbye, England's Rose. May you ever grow in our hearts. You were the grace that placed yourself where lives were torn apart. Called out to our country And you whispered to those in pain Now you belong to heaven And the stars spell out your name And it seems to me You lived your life like a candle in the wind Never fading with the sunset When the rain set in your footsteps will always fall here Along England's greenest hills Your candles burned out long before 
I remember this song being everywhere in 1997. I'm looking at the album cover right now. It's just like blue with a red border and a, a white flower. And I remember going to the record store with my mom and getting like the tape deck. And there was like a million tape decks on the wall that you could <laughs> you could buy because it was the biggest deal. I remember when my mom came running down the stairs, like screaming, like Princess Diana died and like, I just was like caught off guard because I was 13, 14. And I was like, I didn't know why that was such a big deal because mm -hmm. it's not like me and my <laughs> family ever talked about the Royals. Like I knew who she was, but she just seemed like, you know, like somebody far away. Like, okay, why are you so upset? <laughs> but like, clearly like this person was very meaningful to many people all over the world. And I have been watching The Crown and I think I'm getting a little bit of a taste of just like why that was. And it makes sense to me that this was the biggest selling single of that year. And I kind of love that a mid-tempo ballad memorializing someone based on a song that came out decades earlier became the year's biggest hit for some reason that's like really interesting and like reassuring to me I guess I don't know maybe it makes me feel like everybody was mourning together and they did they needed to do that in some way and one of the ways was listening to this song I do it I love Elton John I love the original Candle in the Wind I think that if I were to listen to one or the other I would listen to the original but I don't know it doesn't it doesn't I'm not upset <laughs> that this is you know the biggest song of 97 um it's one of those outliers. It's just like, it clearly wouldn't have even existed had it not been for her death. And it was a huge, 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 huge hit because of that. So if not for that, like, who knows what would have been the biggest, uh, I think I do know what would be the biggest song of 1997. <laughs> Actually, it would be, my heart will go on, I'm sure. Wow, I had the opposite <laughs> experience. I don't think I ever heard this in 1997. Like, not once. What? <laughs> wow. wow. I didn't really know that this existed. Like, I, I guess I had some idea. I think I knew this was about Princess Diana, but like I just, I wasn't listening to the radio at this time. I never would have sought this song out. And I guess maybe because he only performed it once, like, you know, there wasn't like a music video or, you know, something like that, that I like saw him performing it, you know, like at the Grammys or, you know, whatever would have been so the song like completely passed me by wow i do I, I remember like when princess diana died and i had the same reaction um i think it was i first saw um a newspaper headline um that was just die dead and that seems so blunt to me um yeah and it still does like i don't know if i would go with that headline so, I mean, I remember that moment and like you guys, because she was like royalty and a princess, it almost like I knew she was a real person, but it almost felt like a fictional thing that just like happened to be in newspapers instead of like a Disney movie yeah. or something. And so like the fact that like someone who was royalty could die, like we were used to seeing princesses live happily ever after in Disney movies. So it was like a, a really strange like counterpoint to that. And obviously I had no idea of like all the like intrigue in the royal family at that time. But yeah, um, I mean, this song strikes me as just so like not 1997, like not connected at all to the 90s, really. I mean, my context for Elton John was the Lion King in the 90s. So <laughs> <laughs> it might sound even weirder if he had not done like, can you feel the love tonight? But I'm not that into the song either. That kind of drags this whole like playlist down a little bit for me. I fucking hate this song. Chris, I'm, I'm right there with you. 
I think this sounds like, again, Chris, like you, you touched on like knowing Elton John from the Lion King soundtrack. It's like, to me, it feels like a Disney song for a movie that never got made about a legendary princess. I hate the royal family. This song was absolutely fucking inescapable, much like the wall-to-wall, months-long coverage of her death and that funeral was inescapable. Chris, you you started the episode talking about like stories in the news and associating your experience of like living in the 90s with seeing these kind of stories dominate the headlines and become topics of cultural conversation and like collective topics that everyone rallied around. And for me, the death of Princess Diana was randomly one of those things. But even at that, it was one of those events that at the time I was like, why the fuck do so many people care about this? Why are we going on about this so long In America, why is there this mass, public, extremely performative theatrical mourning for a person who never did anything in America, was not American, had nothing to do with this country? Honestly, in retrospect, I chalk it up to, I think that there's something deep in the American psyche that wants to be ruled by kings and queens. I think the way that we treat presidents, especially presidents that are popular, absolutely is kind of proof positive for that, especially in terms of like the Kennedys and Cam a lot and also in terms of you know obama but i think there is kind of something deeper that we won't really go into in this episode but i always just found the obsession with princess diana and just specifically and almost only about her death really weird and disjointed from anything that was going on in america at the time and i think especially in retrospect it's a very schmaltzy and saccharine song i understand that elton john was good friends with her and like from that perspective it's clearly very meaningful and clearly was very meaningful to him but as a song I think it's really weak and I think the lyrics are just silly There's, I find nothing legendary about her whatsoever I just found her to be a white extremely wealthy uh, ruling class person who died under horrific circumstances I just like to point out uh, that I was wrong about My Heart Will Go On uh-huh. <laughs> possibly being oh, no. uh, the number one, if not for this, because number two was Foolish Games and You Were Meant For Me by Jewel. Wow. Well, and, yeah, because My Heart Will Go On wouldn't have come out till the very end of 1997 because that's when Titanic came out. Right. So it would have been like right, exactly. closer to 98's top song. But the number three track of uh, chart topping track of 97 was I'll Be Missing You, which is another song like memorializing somebody. And sampling the police. Yep. And every breath you take, yeah. All right, let's move on to 1998. The uh, top pop single of 1998 was Too Close by Next. Ring a bell? <laughs> uh... <laughs> It rings the opposite of a bell. (laughs) The song was released in uh, September 1997. It was the second single from uh, Next's debut album named Rated Rated Next. It's really hard to say. (laughs) (laughs) God. I have no info on the band Next, but I have info on uh, the English boy (laughs) band named Blue that covered the song. In 2001, they were in New York uh, during the World Trade Center attacks to film the music video, and they were being interviewed afterwards by a British newspaper about the experience of being there. And one of the members said, this New York thing is being blown off proportion. And he asked, what about the whales? They are ignoring animals that are more important. Animals need saving, and that's more important. The other band members were very mad at him. Oh, yeah. And he also said, who gives a fuck about New York when elephants are being killed? Um, They lost their record deal. (laughs) I thought that was pretty funny. (laughs) Oh, 
To that, I would say next. <laughs> it's yeah. too close to the date of this tragedy. <laughs> it's a real boner killer, Becky. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the song song you requested, you're dancing like you're naked. Oh, it's almost like we're sexing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, boo, I like it. No, I can't deny it. But I know you can tell I'm excited. Oh, girl. As I've said many times, I listened to this collection as a playlist. And so I came <laughs> off of the tragic death of Princess Diana, moving right on into I hope she can't tell how hard I am. <laughs> oh my God. Which I think really speaks to the juxtaposition of all of these tracks, which is curated worse than a now CD. I mean, <laughs> I was about to say the 90s feel like a, a now CD. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's a real shuffle. <laughs> yeah. This is a song that like I didn't necessarily recognize. Like when I first read the name of it, I was like, what song is that? And then as soon as I listened to it, I was immediately mm-hmm. pulled back, not to a dentist chair, but to a school dance. <laughs> um, because this was like the upbeat song that I probably most remember from junior high school dances is... Really? Yeah. Well, you were in high school at this point. Okay. Well, I was going to junior high school dances. You know, I was trying my luck with the younger ladies. <laughs> Whoa. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> high school dances then. They would play this all the time. And I know it's like, it took me a while to like figure out what the exact subject of this song is. But eventually, like, I was like, oh, I get it. It's like kind of a subtle song. But like, I, I, I see what's going on here. <laughs> Because I don't think they played the version that has that, like, opening line. I was going to ask, Chris. Where it really spells out, no, like, this don't. song is about erections. It really kind of speaks to the evolution of music. <laughs> I feel like that, like, <laughs> there's, you know, so many, like, earnest songs throughout this playlist. And then, like, by the time we get to the end of the 90s, we're just, like, blatantly, <laughs> like, this song's about my I'm dick. I'm extremely horny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, I don't know. I kind of love this song. It's like catchy. It's like fun to dance to. It's a good pop song. I feel like me and you probably danced this song in college. We probably together. did. And we probably danced a little <laughs> too close, if you know what I mean. A little too close. I, I have no idea. It's too subtle. <laughs> hey, now. <laughs> I didn't recognize the song from the name, but like you, Chris, the second it started, I was like, oh, the song about a boner. <laughs> that song. Um, I remember went because i didn't really listen to lyrics to songs like this i just knew the song mm-hmm. um and i remember being in the hallway at high school and somebody's like that song's about a boner like feel a little poke coming through and i was like oh <laughs> like mm-hmm. i get it um i lo- i think it's great it's a great like club song <laughs> it's a great dance song i think it's hilarious that it was the top uh selling yeah. <laughs> or top charting album, uh, I mean, single of 1998. I think that's hilarious. 
I had absolutely no clue what the song was. None of it was familiar to me at all. I, I, I'm pretty certain I'd never heard it before. And it was at this point in the mix that I questioned the entire basis of doing an episode based on a Billboard year-end list. Also, like, looking at other songs from this year, like, literally every other song was instantly recognizable to me. So it especially, like, stood out. I don't think it's a good song at all. I don't think it's a good pop song. I hate sing-songy melodies in pop songs that are, like, deliberately lifted from children's nursery rhymes. And this is a nursery rhyme-ass song. Wait, what? What do you mean? <laughs> like, the melody was like... Oh, I don't get that at all. All I will say is that the thing I appreciated, and I did appreciate it, was that the song is just so incredibly nasty that I have to tip my hat to it. <laughs> um, and Chris, I can o- I can only surmise that there has to be some like kid and or radio friendly version of this <laughs> with not just the removed intro, but like probably considerably different lyrics because this is not subtextual. This is not subtle. It was it was pretty. I mean, maybe they changed a word or two, but definitely like, you feel a little poke coming through on you. Is was those that was on the radio? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the great thing about the song is that, like, nothing in it is actually explicit. It's just that if you know what they're talking about, um, which probably every uh, boy over the age of 15 does, you know, it's obvious and yet it's not obvious. Like, there's nothing you can really point to that's point to. Ha ha. Uh, (laughs) That's super explicit. So I don't know. I, I It's not the most clever song in the world, but I think it's like kind of clever and it, it, it passes the muster for like a pop single, I think. Did we get any details on the actual original group next? No. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> oh, okay. Did you need any? <laughs> Were they, I'm just guessing they're like a one hit wonder, right? Yeah, like there this weren't is, other this next songs that I've no. missed out on. No, it was this one. And if not for this one, it would have been The Boy Is Mine. Right. That was the other one that I saw. It was like, oh, no, I know that song. It's not my taste at the time or now, but I know that song. Well, let's keep the party going into 1999 (laughs) with Cher's Believe. Believe was the lead single from Cher's 22nd album. Holy shit. (laughs) 22nd album. Was it called Cher 22? (laughs) (laughs) It was called Believe. She was 52 at the time of its release, and she became the oldest female artist to go to number one on the Hot 100. Makes me kind of sad. <laughs> 52 doesn't seem that old, and yet it's the oldest. Autotune was used in the song. Really? <laughs> Autotune was actually first called the Cher Effect because of how it was used in this song. And also, Annie Lambert performed this song at the Kennedy Center Honors, honoring Cher. And it's just great, and I think you should listen to it. <laughs> well, I'm not-
Autotune has entered the chat. <laughs> it's very interesting to listen to all these songs side by side. And then all of a sudden it's like, hello, here we are in a new era <laughs> where there's just, man, I know that people still use Autotune today, but it became just like so pronounced in the 2000s that it's like 1999 is just like, here we are, here we go. This is fine. It's fine. It's a dance song. <laughs> that's, that's my review. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I love that review, um, but I do have to counter with one share facts that I've learned in recent years, which is that actually Cher's voice was not treated with autotune at all. Autotune was certainly what a lot of music critics called it and what we kind of collectively all ended up calling it. Autotune is a vocal correction plugin, like a software plugin only for computers. But what this vocal effect was is called a vocoder. And it's its own kind of musical instrument. It's actually a synthesizer that's used to simulate the sound of a human voice singing. And another reference point for this effect is One More Time, the song by Daft Punk. So it, it's kind of interesting because I do think that like even up till now it's known as kind of the share effect and also like it's everyone calls it autotune and yeah I, I think this was another one of those number one pop hits that was just so overplayed that the last time I heard it before preparing for this podcast I was happy to never hear it again I, I think it's okay. I think it's fine. I don't think Cher's songs are really super amazing. I love her as like a performer and a personality. I really enjoy her as an actress, but I just don't think her songs have been like the best thing about Cher. Yeah, I don't like the song. I've never liked the song. The auto-tune is kind of part of it. It just sounds like she's singing in a fishbowl. Like, I just picture like a fish singing <laughs> the song uh, most of the time. <laughs> And like this was, I, I like I knew Cher kind of as a celebrity before this, but she was kind of absent from music for most of the 90s. And this was like her big comeback. And for me, it was just not something I was into. It just feels like a very like gay club song. Yeah. Not like in a good or bad way, but it was just like, I remember going to gay clubs and this would always be playing. Mm-hmm. Even like years later, because this was 99. Yeah. Yeah. And it just strikes me as like really interesting, like that we're talking about the 90s, the end of the 90s, the number one songs. And we've got Cher and Elton John <laughs> as some of the biggest artists. Yeah. You know, and I mean, obviously, like we were actively like listening to a lot of music at this time. So these are definitely not the songs we would have personally selected as like the top songs of like for this one 99 and so i think it just it kind of speaks to the way that like the billboard charts lost track a bit i think of what was actually popular even though there was always probably you know some fault to the way that they calculated this i think it really kind of fell off toward the late 90s when i'm guessing like a lot of younger people were buying like full album CDs and listening to like their favorite songs off of that and watching MTV and discovering music that way. So I just don't think like this method was capturing what was actually popular at this time. It's more capturing what, you know, was just like playing on the radio and was kind of just more like generic songs that everyone could enjoy rather than like what was actually like really driving music at this point. So this kind of just ends it on kind of a like sad note in a way. Like it, it is, <laughs> it is kind of signaling like the coming of like dance music more, you know, onto charts, which would, you know, continue to be a thing. But um, in general, it was just kind of like, oh, wow, really? Like this is, this was the big song. It, it's, it, it's kind of a wet blanket 
<laughs> Chris, I think you're pointing out something really important here. Like another element of that, the structure of the billboard chart as like a thing kind of succumbs to the fragmentation of how many different places people were listening to music and how many different ways it wasn't that the radio was this one central thing that almost everyone went to to get music i think that's part of what was happening in the culture and in the music industry that made it feel so outdated like this there were a lot of songs that hit the charts that were r&b songs or rap songs or songs that were not pretty straightforward pop songs almost all by white people but it definitely is more pronounced that those songs become number one hits only really near the end of the 90s. Again, I think that's in part because of those shifts in the overall culture, but also really huge shifts in the ways that people were listening to music and the fact that people weren't all listening to the same one source at any one time. So any kind of one chart that tries to like put all of these different genres together would necessarily fall short. And that's even before we really got to any kind of age where the internet would be the dominant place where people would get their music. Yeah. All right. Well, I believe <laughs> uh, it's time to finish our discussion of 1990s singles. For those interested the next five years of the 2000s, the top songs were in 2000, it was Faith Hill's Breathe. 2001, it was Lifehouse's Hanging by a Moment. In the butt rock era. Yeah, it was, 2002 was Nickelback with How You Remind Me. Oof. Uh, 2003, it was 50 Cent's Into Club. And 2004, it was Usher's Yeah. Um, yeah. Just a whole... Continued to I, be I'm a mixed bag. I'm glad we didn't bag. do the 2000s. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I have to say that I, when we first um, decided to do these two episodes talking about the top singles, um, I requested I want to take the '90s, like to to you know research and everything, just because I thought it would be a better <laughs> collection of songs. But I, <laughs> but I think I, I think I would prefer to listen to the '80s songs. A hundred percent. Personally, how about you guys? Absolutely. Same. Same. It's indisputable. As long as I could also listen to the Macarena <laughs> with oh, the 80s songs. You're the only one listening to the Macarena. And I'm proud of it. <laughs> Not really. I'm ashamed. So I'd love to know, uh, before we end, what is, what is your favorite of the selection and which one sucks? Let's start with favorites. I think the best is probably Gangsta's Paradise. That's probably a pretty easy choice. I kind of want to troll you and pick the Macarena, but I'm not going to. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> you know, they're, they're so similar that it's hard to choose between them, but I think I'm just going to like give the edge to Gangsta's Paradise. Yeah, I've got to agree. I think Gangsta's Gangsta Paradise is the most iconically 90s and also like just the one as a song that holds the most interest to me in the sense of what I consider a pop song to be. But again, like for me, there's also a lot of value in it in terms of the words really telling a story. That was the thing that I loved about country music. And it was surprising to me when that song came out that there was something that was that word driven that was really good as a pop song. I think the best songs are I Will Always Love You and Gigs Paradise, but my favorite is The Sign. I want to listen to it right now. Yeah, well, I would say that the sign is the most, like, 90s of these. Like, if I were picking one of these, I mean, Gangsta's Paradise yeah. maybe in, like, the no, good way. No, I would say the Macarena. The oh, Macarena is the most well, 90s for me. We know what I think the worst is. 
Yeah. Is it the Macarena? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, there's so many. <laughs> I feel like I would. <laughs> there's only 10. <laughs> I mean, I'm trying to like decide between like what do what, what would I like least want to listen to again, which is like probably Candle in the Wind, honestly, or maybe Everything I Do. Oh, that one for sure. Those kind of the drippy ones are definitely like end of the road. I could go without ever listening to again. Like any of the kind of like ballady ones are just like no thank you for me. I'll, I'll take anything with a beat a little bit above that. <laughs> and we've run out of days to hold on for on this episode of When We Were Young. On the next episode, we're going to be taking a look at the best actress nominees and eventual winner of the movies of 1991, mainly focusing on Thelma and Louise and The Silence of the Lambs. The When We Were Young podcast is a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California. If you've enjoyed this, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts, and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts so more people see the show. You can also find us on all the social medias and on Patreon at patreon.com slash when we were young. I've been Seth. I'm Becky. I'm Chris. 